All right, welcome to the show. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Erval, who has a YouTube channel that I've uh, I've actually been following for for quite a while now. Um, he makes very interesting arguments um, around religion, philosophy, generally, uh, sometimes politics. But uh, a very very interesting thinker. Definitely recommend everyone checks out his channel. And yeah, if you'd like to introduce yourself, uh, Erval, anything you'd like to to the audience before we get started uh well thank you keith i like your videos as well uh pretty sure i've seen them all and i watch them right when they come out so um one of the most prolific and thoughtful people that i'm aware of uh, on youtube right now um yeah i mean i've been on since probably 2012 and I first got interested in perennialism and arguments for the existence of God and things like that um, out of, well, I was in college and I was an atheist at the time. And I got interested in some other uh, physics arguments surrounding this question about the existence of God. I was following the atheist theist uh, debates as an atheist. And the one argument that I couldn't get around as an atheist was the fine tuning argument, the idea that the physical constants are so specifically uh, set that if you changed like a fraction of a percent of the gravitational constant or, or any of these constants, it would make the universe inhospitable to life. And so to account for this, the best argument from the atheist standpoint is from the anthropic principle saying that, well, perhaps there are many universes with different physical constants. And so of course we should find ourselves in the one that would support life. Um, but then from this many worlds interpretation argument, uh, I went to Nick Bostrom's simulation argument, which was circulating, uh, at least in my college at the time. And, uh, if the many worlds was true, then Nick Bostrom's argument had a very high degree of force. Basically, he says that any advanced civilization would have an interest in attempting to simulate historical, uh, people from its past. And if the many worlds held and civilizations had an interest in simulating their own past uh, consciousnesses, then it would naturally follow that there would be a huge number of uh, simulated minds and only a relatively smaller number of actual, uh, you know, people. So where I, I went with this was kind of a corollary of Leibniz's, uh, identity of indiscernibles, where if we can't subjectively tell the difference between uh, being in a simulation or being in a physical reality, who's to say that there is fundamentally some ontological distinction there? And then I got into thinking, well, if the identity of consciousness is the same, and we're concerned about the fate of our consciousness, for all intents and purposes, that consciousness using these arguments would be uh, run on a variety of underlying substrates, the physical brain of the physical universe, or some of these uh, computing systems from advanced civilizations in the future. So I was pretty nerdy back then, and those were the sorts of arguments that appealed to me. But from that moment forward, I couldn't maintain a standard atheist kind of uh, nihilistic position. And the immortality of the soul I soon found followed from from some of these physics principles that I was looking at. Um, and uh, so then I got on YouTube and I got exposed to the ideas of 
the more conventional traditionalists, Evola. I also went through a phase where I got into Advaita Vedanta, which I'm aware that you're also interested in. And they have uh, some really powerful arguments that all fit together. Um, we can get into the details, but that's basically how I got involved in YouTube. And then the political stuff kind of followed. But I really think that these arguments for traditional views of God, of the good, of beauty, of these sorts of things are extremely important for our time. Um, I think a lot of the problems of the modern world are lack of integration uh, culturally and the kind of alienation that we feel, um, the expansion of capital and the desacralization and commodification of nature um, stem from not having a firm ground for notions like value uh, it, other than mere hedonistic desire and where that leads is uh, just this kind of competing wills in, in perpetuity until we get something like a nanoscale gray goo. Like that is the logical implication of capitalism, of just pure consumption and appropriation. Um, so to, to stem that tide, to go back to something sustainable, uh, I think we have to start with the metaphysics. So how did you get um, interested in these ideas? How were you first exposed to perennialism, traditionalism? Actually, I was just thinking that it is kind of funny listening to you going over your background because it's funny, like it's funny when you you meet sort of like minds uh, in these spheres and then uh, you kind of hear how much how they came to their ideas sort of mimics your own because I like you were talking to a guy called Johan and Rats on your channel the other day. Uh, I remember like uh, I remember watching his videos when he had like a thousand subscribers and uh, it was like the same time when yeah I was watching the like atheist theist debates. I actually, I did a show with uh, Spencer and Ed Dutton the other day about new atheism, actually, because uh, Dawkins has a new book out that's just absolutely, I mean, it's like, it's like the God delusion for children. Like, it's actually, somehow it's worse. It's it's terrible. But uh, yeah, no, I was thinking back to like the whole new atheism phenomenon. And it was actually like, uh, like when I first got regular access to the internet, the first thing I sort of gravitated towards was was that. And uh, not even because I was like a, a strong convictions atheist, but it was just, uh, I think some people are just kind of attracted to those kinds of uh, topics and discussions. It's funny how a lot of people you hear that were into that kind of thing then end up uh, dealing with some of like the, the political questions that I think we're both interested in now. But uh, yeah, I remember, I think that was probably my first exposure would have been around that time. Uh, the atheist, atheist debates were interesting to me a lot. and uh you know to my surprise i was actually finding the theistic case more convincing when i ran into uh you know actual christian philosophers rather than uh some of the sort of dead weight that like dawkins would sometimes choose to debate but uh yeah i remember around that time i remember actually probably one of the most influential books ever because i read it when I was only 16 or 17 it was, it was one of the first like sort of weighty non-fiction books i read uh was the perennial philosophy by Huxley and mm -hmm. yeah it, it's it's a weird thing I mean it's it's hard to explain but it just made it made sense it made so much sense on a, a very intuitive level um and then I, I remember reading the book as well the holographic universe um which got into a lot of the you know physics and stuff in quantum theory and uh you know things around consciousness uh that would tend to support like a monistic worldview. So reading those two books together 
uh, kind of gave me a basis for following that line of thought. And then, yeah, from that, got very interested in in other branches of mysticism. Um, yeah, sort of settled on Advaita Vedanta as like the best uh, sort of philosophical explanation for it, the one that made the most sense. Um, and then sort of drifted, as I sort of drifted away from philosophy and started getting interested in like political theory and sort of a reactionary political theory, like Joseph de Maistre and those people, then I encountered uh, the traditionalist school, like Evola again, and then that was that was kind of a way to tie those two things together, like um, you know, a, an interest in a more maybe reactionary politics and like the the sort of spiritual sickness of the modern world combined with uh, uh, with metaphysics and with the perennial philosophy. And uh, yeah, I guess since then I'd say I've been sort of following those those two lines together. I mean, I kind of drift between philosophy and politics. Lately, I've been kind of like like you said there i mean lately i've been kind of you know i was very much into the, the sort of political questions of the day but lately i found myself sort of drifting back towards uh the deeper questions and i mean some of that is just interaction with people as well like you know when you when you see like the same sort of bad arguments being made or when you see i mean i know i've like gone off on nietzscheans lately but some of the nietzscheans i was interacting with it's like you know, you realize there isn't actually much there in terms of a worldview and you start to question, like, am I really allies with these people? Uh, do we actually want the same thing? Do I want people like this to win? Uh, how far can we go when we have this, like, fundamentally different conception of things? So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm interested to talk to people like you, because, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to find people that are investigating these things from outside of a very narrow sort of uh, pragmatist or materialist lens. Yeah, but they really do go hand in hand, the pragmatic concerns and these fundamental metaphysical issues. Um, but people really can't be faulted for not getting invested in those questions because they're hard to conceptualize in the first place. Materialist presuppositions about the world seem so natural. Mm. Um, but Donald Hoffman relatively recently came out with the book, The Case Against Reality. And uh, before that, he came out with a paper um, in evolutionary game theory, fitness, the fitness beats truth theorem, which makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. And it says that our the way that we interact with the world, our modes of representation, space, time, matter, um, our conventional ontology, kind of naive materialism, is an evolved perceptual apparatus geared not towards faithful representation of the nature of the world itself, but towards survival, towards fitness. And so there's a number of uh, ways in which faithful representation of the true nature of reality would actually be a waste of resources, uh, like in cal caloric terms. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we shouldn't expect that naive materialism, the way that we initially see the world, just is the way the world is. And this is reflected in ancient philosophies regarding Maya in the East, and Plato hits at it with the idea of the cave. Um, and it's, for me, it all stems from like an ethical core. And I think the reason I was interested in those atheist theist debates was that I was concerned for the fate of my soul after death. What happens when I die? Um, I think all of us want some kind of answer to that question. And to know what we ought to do in this life 
to know what is good, we have to have some idea of the nature of the soul. Uh, does Is there a future? Is there a heaven and hell? Obviously, if Christianity is right and there is a heaven and there is a hell and belief in Jesus is the way to heaven, uh, we ought to believe in Jesus, right? It's pretty straightforward. But if we start from this naive materialism and pragmatically just kind of work through things and seek out what we're aesthetically drawn to politically and in different dimensions of life, um, it just it's obviously too ad hoc to arrive at any kind of firm foundation. And that also has pragmatic costs in that it's hard to build a large collective unless the ideal structure undergirding it has a high degree of integrity. If you have a bunch of Nietzscheans grouped together, what keeps them together? There's a constellation of immediate interests, perhaps, you know, you're trying to achieve something together. Um, but that can only go so far as that particular problem persists. And then once that problem uh, becomes eclipsed by some new concern, it's not guaranteed that all those people in that group are going to continue being concerned about that same issue. Uh, and so just logically, if you want to build something like culture, society, civilization through the generations, you have to have a metaphysical foundation. I mean, people like your colleague uh, Edward Dutton are aware that a religious belief is essential for group survival in a number of ways. It helps groups identify insiders from outsiders. It gives them a meaning and purpose to life. It helps them psychologically as individuals. And we see that in fertility rate statistics in contemporary society. The religious will inherit the earth. Um, but you know, if you're interested in the truth of what happens after death and these questions about the nature of fundamental reality, then like received dogmatic religion may not be all that satisfying. And for intelligent people, it's usually not. And a lot of Westerners go through a phase where they maybe they were raised Christian and then they doubt and they kind of analyze things philosophically. But then eventually they become interested in something like comparative mythology or in your case and my case, apparently uh, just pure a priori arguments and uh, physics. And they start seeing that a lot of the truths contained in that dogmatic form of religion are easily interpreted as symbolic representations of relatively abstract philosophical concepts. And it's the nature of those concepts that uh, got me back to the, the importance of the ritual of religion. I am a practicing Catholic, and I think it's valuable, even if you don't necessarily believe in the teachings of the church, to be in communion with some kind of body of, wor of worshipers, um, because that psychological uh, like acceptance of your own finitude, acceptance of some standard of value beyond yourself, the idea that something is worthy of worship beyond just your own preferences and aims and self, essentially, um, that's, I think it's impossible to grow unless you find that humility and religion is, I, I always found that the kids who I knew growing up who were Catholic or who were Christians of other stripes were just nicer to be around and we had better conversations and 
were generally better people than the people who are not raised in such environments, which of course there's probably a genetic factor there. If you weren't raised by religious people, you don't have those religious genes and you're a spiteful mutant according to Dutton. But, uh, but yeah, so obviously I think it's a very important question. Um, did you want to look at some of the, the arguments, um, that I've been focused on lately? I mean, I got really into, um, Plato. I mean, I've always been interested in Plato, but particularly in the last few years and Proclus just in the last few months. And I'm finding that a lot of what drew me to Advaita Vedanta is really contained in Platonism and in a much more systematic form than I was previously aware of. Um, yeah, well, I, I always thought uh, Plotinus, who's a, a Neoplatonist, is basically just Western Vedanta. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with Plotinus. I've read a bit of him. Yeah, um, the Enneads are very, very dense and difficult, to be honest. Yeah, they are, for sure. And Proclus is, is difficult as well, but his major work is the elements of theology, and it's laid out nice and systematically. And he gives these propositions starting from the most basic, which I found that this notion, um, it's I think it's first articulated in the history of philosophy with Heraclitus, and you might call it like the transcendental union of opposites. Um, mm -hmm. It's in Proclus, it's, that first proposition is that every manifold part participates in some way of unity. Uh, Chris Langan articulates this with his concept of syndifionesis. Um, and he would say that any two linguistic objects in order to form some kind of duality have to share some kind of underlying syntax whereby they are in the first place intelligible. And so there's no such thing um, a fortiori of, of like absolute separation. All separation implies some kind of underlying, underlying uh, interpretive syntax and means whereby we recognize difference, right? And Proclus, uh, in going into this kind of notion of the transcendental unity of all things, uh, argues therefore for the preeminence and priority ontologically of the one. And the notion of the one is just something that is absolutely simple, undifferentiated, and you find that ubiquitously across different theological traditions in classical theism in the West, uh, with Thomism in the uh, theology of the Arab uh, philosophers, although that's been downplayed since the 11th century or so with the rise of uh, Sunni, uh, more fundamentalist schools. But that's also part of the theology in Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, and yeah, th this paints a very different picture of the nature of reality than we find in most modern, more materialistic conceptions. Like we think of consciousness, for, for instance, as being emergent and built up from the bottom from inanimate matter, right? In our, in our conception, these simple, uh, you know, bodies combine and behave in interesting ways and evolve and produce more complex, more refined in a sense things, things that are more valuable to us of a higher nature. And it's this kind of bottom-up conception as opposed to the Greek conception, the Platonic conception, where everything is suspended from that one. The one is the highest being and everything moving away from it is an expression 
of that one's kind of superabundant goodness. And we get an equation between the one and the good. Um, and he gives an argument for this, Proclus does in the elements, it, from the fact that everything's good is that which allows it to remain in being, right? To allow it to, to persist. And at, at base, like the most irreducible element of a thing is that which maintains its existence as a unified whole. You cut me in half, I'm no longer a whole, I'm no longer one, and that's bad for me. And so anything that allows us to remain one, it, in some sense, is a good for us. Uh, and this reflects also the ethics of, of Schopenhauer, it reflects the ethics of the, the Vedanta system, where uh, in, in more like Western and Promethean, Faustian, uh, Nietzschean conceptions of value, it's our creative act, creating something with our own volition and agency that brings value and meaning to life. Well, the traditional conception is exactly the opposite. Creation and engaging in further emanation and further complexification and moving away from simplicity, that is moving into Maya, that is moving away from the source of our proper good. And, uh, and if you think about just kind of the stoic arguments for detachment from material objects, that follows pretty straightforwardly, just at a purely psychological level. Nothing in life is guaranteed. Your political cause may fail. Your uh, relationships may fail. If you have kids, your kids could be wiped out by a plague. I mean, there's nothing guaranteed in this life except the enjoyment of your own soul, the, your own mind. That can't be taken away from you. And so these uh, more ascetic practices of becoming detached from these objects of desire and returning to whatever is most fundamental to yourself gives you greater resilience than the, the kind of contingency, material contingency that we experience when we're addicted to various things in the world that are fundamentally beyond our control. Um, and so I think just pragmatically, like there's a good reason to take this kind of ethical view seriously. Yeah, I remember um, actually, uh, I remember when I left a, a job last year, I remember, um, you know, I was kind of reevaluating things. I remember reading about uh, minimalism, but it, it's funny when you read about minimalism, it's you realize it's actually kind of a, a perennial teaching in itself and that you find it in like Zen Buddhism, you find it in Stoicism. It, it is kind of a, you know, it is like a perennial teaching that, yeah, the, the things you own start to own you and that there is this uh, feeling of sort of freedom and, and fullness that comes with like detachment from from material objects. That's like a, a perennial piece of wisdom. Mm -hmm. For sure. And uh, in Advaita Vedanta itself, in the Upanishads, they uh, prefer the path of basically identifying as much as possible with that oneness, simplicity, kind of ultimate being within the soul rather than other levels of being that you might worship, like the kind of deities in the Hindu pantheon or something like that. But Proclus, his view is that in order for any being to return from whence it came, it has to proceed through those steps which allowed for its emergence. And so he basically draws out in the elements this whole scheme where the one begets different 
types of one, which he calls henads. And these he equates to the Greek gods. They also are fundamentally simple, but they're different aspects of simplicity. And remember, the simplicity of the one and the goodness of the one are one and the same. And so a quality like that which guards, he sees that as a, a deity and also one aspect of the oneness. Um, and from each of these henads, it proceeds to a corresponding being and divine intellect. And then from these divine intellects, uh, it naturally follows if they are also going to be prolific, just like the one in its goodness is prolific, then these uh, divine intellects have to create intellects in their own image, which are slightly less divine. And all through gradations and through a continuum so that there's intermediaries at every step. Um, the intellects then in turn give rise to souls, which they're at the very top of the hierarchy of souls. There are divine souls, which can be traced directly back to the divine henads, to the gods themselves. And this would be something like an incarnation of a Zeus or Athena on the earth. Um, or also there's the soul in heaven, uh, super mundane souls, but Beyond the level of divine souls, you would have souls which always worship the gods, souls that have perfect intellects. These are like angels in Catholicism. And then below that level, you have souls that sometimes worship the gods. And that's souls like us. And so the idea is that finding ourselves in this position where we do not possess perfect intellects, but sometimes we have a capacity of energizing in union with those higher types um, in order to return back to the one we have to go through those divine souls through the divine intellects back through the gods and then to the one itself and so this gives a kind of logic to the greek pagan uh, paganism and practices of um you know, sacred groves, sacred altars, sacred places, the, the divinities descend all the way to the material world. And it's not, not everything is a God, right? Only certain things have that spirit of the divine in them. And we worship those things So it's this kind of particularism that I find interesting, at least about Proclus's system, that's not present in something like Advaita Vedanta. And uh, this is also present in Roman paganism. You know, in a certain sense, this is the Platonic philosophy, but in a wider sense, this is simply the underlying mythic structure and like deep metaphysical presupposition of Mediterranean society generally. Roman paganism um, is famous for having thousands of different gods for different things, mundane objects, and this gets absorbed by the Catholic Church in the uh, idea of different patron saints for any particular uh task that you have like there's a patron patron saint of uh sailing of finding lost things uh whatever yeah. you may need a saint oh, yeah. there's someone to pray for you to, to uh, like, intercede any, on your behalf yeah i think uh, any irish person remembers like being told to to pray to saint anthony uh, if they lost something so i think that's like a, a memory everyone has here 
Yeah. Well, my wife does that whenever she lo- she loses things often, and she always says Saint Anthony, Saint Anthony. It seems to work. I don't know. There's something to it. But uh, this, I think it's what I like about it is that it kind of grounds um, this ritualistic and temporal uh, reenactment of the act of divine creation in a ritualistic fashion. And I feel like that's something that's it's difficult yeah, to I'll recreate. Say, but if I can get in, I'll, I'll just say, um, you know, I am like I was raised Catholic. I'm very attracted to Catholicism uh, aesthetically. And uh, I do like a lot of the theology as well. The problem for me is the kind of um, there, like there's there seems to be such a kind of multiplicity there in terms of like um, patron saints and angels and all this thing. I, I find it very hard to conceive um, this kind of uh, divine multiplicity. Um, I don't know. My conception of the divine was always more sort of uh, simple and monistic. Right. And there's a parsimony to that. But in order to explain the complexity of the world, it does make sense that you would have from the div- the simple divine, the things which are most proximate to it, which would be fewer in number because they're closer to simplicity. And then you would have things that are somewhat more removed from the divine, which are greater in number than the previous, but smaller in number than those following and so, like, this illustration, Catholic illustration of, like, the the white light at the center and then the different orders of angels kind of rotating, circumambulating around the divine simplicity, that it, there's something logical about it. In, the, in order to go from simplicity to uh, complexity, you have to pass through various grades of complexity. And so if we find ourselves at this level of complexity, like here socially now, in order to get back to something simpler and more well-grounded, there's like a definite path towards that. And it, it's through tradition. It's through the, the very same levels of emanation that we proceeded to this point. Of course, there's going to be uh, a difference as we return to, to, to tradition than when we initially proceeded out into it. Like when we're uh, initiated into faith, we do so from a position of ignorance, right? And and then as we say we proceed beyond Catholicism into skepticism or whatever else, um, we start being creative in our own right and, you know, inventing our own philosophical notions. And then through the return, the character of coming back to religion, coming back to God is, is different. It's it's a perfected nature in a sense, rather than the kind of creative nature of the outgoing process. Um, so I don't know. The, the idea that we need all of these particular gods, like, well, the gods are there uh, in the Proclus' system or in Hinduism. The saints are there in Catholicism if you need them. Right. But if you want to take that straight and narrow Advaita Vedanta path and just identify the divine uh, in in others and in yourself as its fundamental simplicity and that works for you, then great. But realistically, the number of souls that are naturally adapted towards that kind of spiritual practice are few in number because that's closer to that kind of divine nature and the 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 natures, the souls which require more methodical and particularistic practices are greater in number. 
Um, and that's one great thing about Christianity in particular compared to other faiths is that it's not just that we have a bunch of different saints in the Catholic Church, it's that we have a bunch of different churches. And if, you know, Catholicism doesn't work for you, well, there's orthodoxy. Or if that doesn't work, you could look at Gnostic Christianity. And I think this is a sign that there's something more to Christianity than just some kind of like cynical invention by first century Jews, right? There, it, it has a, a genuine mythic component. Um, mm. Well, this is the idea, like you said, when you read the perennial philosophy, something was deeply resonant in it at an intuitive level. And if it is the case that there is this true nature of reality and our souls are descended from it, in a sense, also contain it, then we should find that there is a deep sympathy and resonance between an articulation of this philosophy and our, our very selves, right? Like it's it's mm -hmm. in us in some fundamental sense. Um, but I actually yeah. Can I? I'll actually I'll kind of take it down a level a bit here, but I I'm curious as well because you mentioned uh, Ed Dutton's like spiteful mutant thesis. Like, do you find that a difficult circle to square? Presuming you do accept that. Because you kind of run into a position where you're almost forced to accept eugenics. I mean, unless unless you just, um, you know, unless you were to remove sort of the uh, artificial comforts of industrial society and go back to some kind of natural selection. Uh, it's like you run into all the problems that Dutton highlights with um, the spiteful mutant idea that you'd eventually sort of uh, destroy your religion and destroy society anyway through... Uh, the perpetuation of uh, of people with these like uh, mutant loads or whoever did describe it. Um, I don't know. I, I just because, you know, in my head, when I look for like a sort of consistency of how I'd, I'd square some of these beliefs, uh, you, you know, if you, if you can't, um, I mean, to my knowledge, anyway, you can't really justify eugenics in a Christian worldview. And it just seems like being completely without eugenics uh, kind of will ultimately lead to your own demise or your group's own demise. You know, it, it seems like that, but then there's the notion of uh, sorting the wheat from the chaff, right? And in the uh, book of Revelation, it it is the case that I think 144,000 people, Christians, are supposed to inherit the earth, ultimately. They'll be in the, the heaven uh, that's to come. So there, this idea that there will be a a growth of evil natures and then some kind of culling is built in not only to Christianity, obviously, but I mean it goes all the way back to Zoroaster. And but I mean that, that that's not for like that's not for us to do to culling in that sense. Well, right, yeah, you kind of have to trust in uh, divine justice that if if it is the case that we're getting these spiteful mutants and they're polluting the gene pool and reducing our intelligence and making us more selfish and uh, individual selected and short life history and all the stuff that Dutton talks about, which are, I think they're real scientific measures of just a base nature that we ought to expect given the kind of cycle of the ages doctrine from perennialism, generally Hinduism, uh, specifically, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it also squares with the geopolitical circumstance. And I don't know, I think I mentioned this to you in private, but my 
one of my main concerns politically is coming up with some concept of traditional society and healthy community which uh, and and freedom for those communities which at the same time prevents us from running into this problem created by technological singularity and not just a kind of Kurzweilian notion of AI run amok, but there are a lot of technologies that we could develop that could end in destroying the biosphere or at least wiping out large chunks of humanity. And so from the, like taking the elite perspective on this, if they don't set up some kind of surveillance control grid around the entire planet, then as we move into the future, the odds go up that some lone scientist in his garage will cook up the nanoscale gray goo or genetically engineer some super competitive bacteria or yeah, develop a, a hyper advanced AI that's based on an uh, evolutionary algorithm and it keeps on improving itself and then quickly becomes smarter than us and we have no control past that point. So if the species is to survive and technological industrial civilization continues, then it would be necessary to have basically a, a global technocratic dystopia, right? And so is that the most desirable outcome? Well, even if, even if we maintained current population levels and just locked down tighter with this kind of technocratic control, uh, it would still be the case that the resources that we're relying on for an advanced industrial civilization are running out. And so far we've you know, caused the extinction of a number of species, destroyed coral reefs, the oceans are polluted and we're running out of fish. Like it seems completely unsustainable when you look at it. So I don't see, even if they did prevent this kind of technological threat to humanity, the elites, there would still be the problem of resource scarcity and pollution and environmental degradation. And so if you were an elite and you knew all this and they do, you know, what other option would remain? And then you start thinking about the UN agendas, right? And uh, creating all of this open space, wilderness corridors, and reduce, of course, reducing the population to 500 million. That's the, the target in uh, Agenda 21. And how, how do you go from 7 billion to 500 million without some kind of culling? And uh, there's not a huge amount of time considering this kind of technological threat for such a culling to happen. So, you know, whether God initiates the apocalypse or the elites initiate the apocalypse, um, it, I think we're going to have some kind of apocalyptic scenario because um, it's in the interest of the elites. If they want humanity, to, if they want to survive themselves, they have to bring us back from advanced industrial civilization back to a more sustainable, more traditional kind of existence. So I think we're going to get a, a form of traditionalism no matter what. The question is um, who wins in that struggle that's described in the book of Revelation? Um, is it the elites? Is it the beast system and a global human cause technocratic government where we say, you know, we are the gods? And it's concerning to me how many people from these circles, like Kurt Doolittle comes to mind, would use the rhetoric of we have to become gods ourselves. We have to transcend humanity. And and that's, well, that's what the elites, many of them are planning on doing. 
And if the rest of us are pushed back to some kind of primitive state, they would rule over us as gods. And I guess the people advocating for that kind of future from their own perspective would be, would, they would get their just desserts in that case. Um, but the, the other option is that somehow God wins out and a more natural form of order uh, is through a providential act instantiated. In the Bible, That it says that that will be through some kind of great prophet. I mean, specifically Jesus, who's more than just a prophet. But that same notion is echoed in the other major world religions as well. Um, the final battle is there in Islam. It's there in Buddhism with the figure of Maitreya. It's there in Hinduism with Kalki. Um, so if you put any stock in comparative mythology and prophecy and any of that for superstitious reasons, perhaps, uh, it it's disconcerting how well that aligns with the kind of geopolitical uh, and environmental future we're facing. We're, we're going to have to have some kind of final battle between humanity, which wants to align itself with divine logos, reason, order, and the kind of natural path and then uh, humanity, which wants to usurp the gods and become gods on earth. And that unfortunately, like we're just, we're either going to witness that or we're going to be participants in that, in my opinion, in the next century.